לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Jeremy Kalmanowski, Andrzej Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, and Solomon Schechter, representing Solomon Schechter Day School of Long Island. It's great to see you. We're, we're recording this early in the week, so you'll, you'll be surprised to get this in your YouTube feeds earlier in the week, because um, I'm going to Israel tonight, on Sunday night, flying to Israel tonight. I'm going to be there for uh, 10 days to visit my son and daughter and their respective others, and um, just looking forward to that. But we got to do the Parsha talk. We got to do the Parsha talk for Mishpatim. Mishpatim. And it's also Shabbat Shkalim, which we probably won't get into. Mishpatim starts with the words, Ve'ela ha-mishpatim. Ve'ela ha-mishpatim. Asher tasim lifnehem. These are the statues, the ordinances, the Mishpatim that you will place before them. I just want to do the one Rashi to put to set us up here. Kom ha-kom shenemar ele. Everywhere it says the word Ela, Pasalata Roshonim, it means it just kind of sets aside what comes before it. Ve'ele, Mosif ala Rishonim. When it adds the, the, the conjunctive, the and these are, this is in addition to. And so the question then is, what is the place of these Mishpatim? How do they function in the context of the general revelation of Sinai? And Quite frankly, how do they function as a legal code within the legal codes of ancient Israel? And for bonus points, how does it function in Jewish law? So let's take on these very, very simple topics. <laughs> well, so since, you, since you brought up the Rashi, I'm just going to continue down on the Rashi a little bit. Um, and with, with, a, with a reference to something that Perhaps our, our folks will find interesting that the same Rashi, Rashi's, many of you know, major, major, major Bible commentary, France, 1040 to 1105. Um, that was the length of his Shior from 1040 to 1105. They studied Bible. But uh, he thought he was he, doing partial talk. He often went over. <laughs> um, he mostly was, uh, you know, he would draw when, whenever he could to explain the semantic meaning, he would try to draw on classical rabbinic midrash. And and uh, this one I think does come from the Mechilta, the Mishnaic era midrash on Exodus, and it it says you know this is what you should place before them. God says to Moses, don't think, you know, I'm gonna tell them a little bit now, and I'll tell them a little bit later, and it's gonna be a little bit fragmentary and scattered all over the place. But you know, I'm not gonna. I, I as a teacher, I don't have to get this really really clear. That's why it says Asher Tasim Lifnehem that you should place before them Keshulchan Ha'aruch Umuchan Leechol Lifnei Adam like a well-set table arrayed ready for a person to eat and as it as it happens to to place before the the biblical idiom are to place before you um, does usually refer to food 
Actually, they, they place such and such before the person means means that, that they gave them food to eat. And so that is the the idea of the code being, you know, supposed to be very practical, detailed, it tells you what to do right out there. That's why our major legal code from the from the 16th century is called the Shulchan Aruch, the set table. Yeah. Uh, based on based on that Rashi or that, that phrase may or may not be in the Mechilta itself. But the idea is that the code. You know, we we started. We made this covenant last week, and and in the parts of last week, and the uh, the the you know pyrotechnics and the experience of meeting God is very very powerful. It'll, that'll happen again at the end of our parsha this week, but it's got to have some content, and the content has to to be. Here's how you deal with with wealth and poverty. Here's how you deal with holidays. Here's how you deal with with uh, you know torts and business conflicts and all those things. Are that's the that's the substance of the covenant you just made. Yeah, but is it is so? Is it so simple? Look at the first verse. If you buy or acquire a Hebrew slave, six years shall he serve you. And on the seventh year, he will go free. So, I mean, you could put this in front of a ten-year-old and get, you know, dozens and dozens of questions. Not the least of which is, how is it that there's slavery? in the Bible, and what does it say about slavery? And and then for a, a much more um, mature person, what, can you say, you know, does the Bible uh, include things that we find repugnant, morally repugnant, which would be slavery? And to what extent does that belong? And so all of a sudden, you know, the set table, which which has, you know, what's, what seems to have clear laws is, is actually an opener for Big, big conversations. So in the modern world, this discussion was um, in some ways best encapsulated by an exchange of letters between Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig on the meaning of Revelation. Martin Buber was very big on this idea that Revelation was an event with no content. It was a meeting between God and Israel. And Rosenzweig believed that law could come out of Revelation. And it was a difference that had in part to do with their levels of observance, Buber mostly non-existent, and Rosenzweig in the famous phrase, not yet, when he was asked if he did a specific mitzvah, either he did it or he was on the road to doing it. But here I think what we have is an attempt to take a known body of law, which is I think is what the covenant code is, and attach it to Mount Sinai. So the set table that Jeremy discussed is actually an explanation, I think, of sorts of the Revelation. So we have this great scene last week in chapter 19 and 20 of Revelation at Mount Sinai, and what comes out of it, what you're supposed to feast on, are the details of the law that are going to begin in our Parsha this week and carry through most of the rest of the book of Exodus. Can you just explain to me, when you say the word feast on law, you know what? How you interpret that, and what what does that metaphor? Well, mean? I was thinking about this, and there's a great phrase for a collection of law, which is a digest. Okay. But we mostly know the word digest from eating. eating. So there is a connection linguistically on some level, perhaps mostly in my imagination. Granted, <laughs> but between law and food, and I think the idea is that the law is supposed to be digestible, meaning. You can work your way through it. It's not supposed to give you heartburn, you know, some kind of gastrointestinal disease, but you're supposed to be able to digest it, understand it, and apply it. 
and then perhaps if we want to continue the metaphor. <laughs> no, eliminate it. Would you, would you would you go as far as saying you know I I am spiritually sustained by my perusal analysis study of and mastery of the law. You know, I think this came up last week. I think on some level in the conservative movement we believe that no matter what our particular adherence is to Jewish law in general or in specifics, we're not willing to jettison it. It's a an important part of our core Jewish identity. And, you know, speaking as three rabbis, I imagine in some ways our observances are relatively close together, but probably some great divergences. But I want to point out one other thing. So you talked about the abhorrence of slavery. And one of the things that always strikes me when I read chapter 10 of Mishnah Pesachim is that the premise of the rabbinic Seder is someone is serving you. That the definition of freedom in the Tanaitic period is not free the way we understand it as good Americans or North Americans to include Elliot, of course, but as people that other people serve, right? It's Mazgulo close Rishon. Someone else is pouring that cup of wine for you. You don't have to do it yourself. So we have to really work through what we actually find repugnant um, because I think it's more embedded in our tradition, not just a biblical tradition, than we're sometimes willing to allow. Uh, just on, on that on that point in in that chapter in Pesachim, Rav Nachman is portrayed in this like monstrously obnoxious moment. He's trying to convey to you know his guests what what the feeling of freedom like. He calls his slave Daru over and says, "Daru, if I were to if I were to offer you your freedom right now, how would you feel?" I said, "I'd be so happy." He said, "Guys, that's how we're supposed to feel on Pesach." <laughs> oh my so, god okay, but so so i i want to take a critical eye to then say you know that that there's something that even in the torah itself is that the torah is unsettled by it and the torah itself undermines the institution of slavery acknowledging that it exists as part of economic reality of antiquity uh but 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 is is uh mortified by it or repulsed by it and I'll go back to last week. It's easy to go back to to the Ten Commandments because the commandment for Shabbat really is the is the epitome of undermining slavery, right? You you give you you have a commandment to observe Shabbat, your servant, your maidservant, right? So you give your servant and your maidservant a taste of freedom on one day. You don't think they're gonna like that the rest of the week? You know, and, and that to me says that the Torah is uncomfortable with with slavery, notwithstanding the fact that it exists, and not the, the withstanding the fact that we find it kind of repugnant, and that and that immediately when we when we recite a verse, and and I'm here thinking that we probably are in good company from from rabbinic times on, or from even biblical times on. Nobody liked this idea of slavery. Well, I I wouldn't go quite that far. I think there were people that liked it, but I think your general point is an important point. But I think the other piece of it that we have to keep in mind is that a good part of Jewish tradition, although obviously not all of it, is very pragmatic. And it's based on the idea that we live in an unredeemed world. And we take baby steps towards the age of redemption, which traditionally we identify with the Messiah. And unfortunately, Jewish history is littered with moments, some lasting longer than others, where people clung to a messianic fervor such that they made the unredeemed world a lot more unredeemed than it needed to be. 
but our progress towards redemption is very slow. And so I think your point is well taken that there is a, a dissonance between the stated law and what is actually behind it. But just as you question that we have to be aware of that, we also can't make too much of it either. So I think I think this is really important um, because, uh, you know, you, Elliot, you pose the question, like, do we feel that the study of the law and the practice of the law is sustaining? And I think the answer for a traditional Jew has to be an unequivocal yes. And each individual person, you know, one person's spirit may really, you know, thrive with the details of the law. And another person says, you know, I really prefer to study poetry or philosophy or whatever. But um but as a community, we are a, a profoundly legal culture. And, and this goes to exactly the things that you, that you two are talking about right now, which is that law is never a description. When you open the, the, the Torah or the Talmud or whatever, the Shulchan Aruch, it's not a description of what people do. It's not a report about what people do. It's a prescription about what people should do. And when they, when they uh, invest these behaviors... The idea is it is supposed to lead somewhere. Um, it's not, I don't relate to an idea of observance for the sake of observance and obedience for the sake of the obedience quite so much. Um, I, I relate to something that's teleological, that's pointing towards a better future. And I think this is really, you know, in, in the long history of Judaism and Christianity, you know, a classic sort of anti-Jewish dig from Pauline Christianity onward is we've got the spirit of the law and you dummies are kind of mired in the details of the law. And our answer has always been that you only get to the spirit of the law through the details of the law. And that's why the details are important. They really do make society. They really do remake or can make society and can remake the world if we invest these behaviors, so, which is why it matters to us that, you know, in an ancient society, they did have attitudes towards slavery that, that, we would not accept. They had differential attitudes towards Jewish slaves who were short-term indentured servants and non-Jewish slaves who were chattel slavery. Those things are and should be, you know, very, very uh, repugnant to us. But we have to recognize them as trying to, in their co economic context, very different from our own, trying to make the world uh, a better and fairer place. All right, let, let me let me let me move into a different piece of legislation. We didn't talk about this before, but I want to get your reactions to this. So it it says verse 13, 21, 13, which means quite literally, so if you smite a smiting a person, vamet, and the person dies, the smiter will be put to death. So imagine you're Moshe, okay, and you are repeating these words. Okay, God said to Mo, to Moshe, these are the laws that you are to give them. And then he says, okay, Moshe, tell them, someone who smites another person who dies, so, so you're, it's like it reminds me of the, the Israeli satire, it's a perfect you know, satire, which is you're issuing a command that you've already violated, or or is it? And this is where we get into this problem, which is, how can you take the law in in, in as it's written without interpreting it? Moses, explain to explain that. Our... So so back back in chapter two of Shmot, we have this this uh, moment where Moses grows up. He's, he he sees the suffering of his brothers. He sees an Egyptian smiting 
a Hebrew, he looks this way and that way, he smites the Egyptian, it doesn't tell us that he killed the Egyptian, it just says that he smites him, and he buries him. Okay, because it stands to reason that he killed him because he stopped breathing. Because you know, as we, we tried to act this out once, and and a defense for Moses was, I didn't hit him. I did. He, he walked into my fist. <laughs> he just. Do you realize, do you realize like, if, if you've seen, uh, I mean, this is we're all talking about movies here, but they didn't have you know, like, like. Glocks or nine millimeters. We're talking about like to to smite somebody until they die. It's got to be an act of just truly for us. Unless unless he's a he's a football player and you happen to do you remember the the Buffalo the, the Buffalo football player who was Demar Hamlin? Yeah, Demar Hamlin. They they ran. They tried to bat, tackle him and they they got him right on the chest and his heart stopped. Yeah, that was a, that was a one in a million. Exactly. So here you could say that Moses smiting the Jew, he hit him on the chest. It was right at the defibrillating moment, and the guy collapsed. And of course, they didn't have you know nine one one and ambulances. Then the guy died. Right, but I I think you know we, we can't lose sight of the fact that a law code is shorthand because as Jeremy said, it needs interpretation. And if Moses had been put on trial, his defense would be that the Egyptian that he smote was also smiting someone he was a yes he was he was he, he was acting in defense of the of the otherwise victim who because you remember the guy was Maka ish ivri me'echav. he was he was smite smiting one of oh that was the two that was that's the two israelites but yeah same story. but here i think that it's not far-fetched to reason that there is an element of intent and motive embedded in the commandment it's not just that you happen to hit someone. You know, this comes up in discussions a lot when we talk about the difference between thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not kill. You know, because mo- even in my school, a lot of students think, at least on some level, that the sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. But it's thou shalt not murder because self-defense and war are notable to the commandment. And I think here... Mo, this is not the law that governs Moses. Well, so but you're only saying. Although Ramban, if if I remember correctly, thought this was why Moses did not get into the promised land. Okay, so fine. In fact, he was punished for his killing. But, but the, what I'm trying yeah. to say is that that already you, you you we're we're trying to adjudicate here a situation. You know, by by saying here's the law. The law is pretty unequivocal. But actually, uh, the law needs to be interpreted. Go go to the next verse. Of course, the law needs to be interpreted. But, but before I just leave this real quick, let's just note one important difference between the Ten Commandments of Parsha Yitro and the Code of Mishpatim. Lo tirzach, that is an exhortation. Do not murder. That's how you should behave. That is a, you know, apodictic, is to use that fancy phrase. This tells you how to behave. The casuistic law, when the following thing happens and one person smites another one, they should be put to death. That's a totally different kind of law because not only is it telling you how to behave or not to behave, 
it's telling you that there's a punishment, a specific punishment. It legislates the death penalty, which is like, it seems to be all the difference in the yeah, world. I'm, I'm only laughing at you because you said that they should be put to death, which which always reminds me when I kind of roll through a stop sign. I make a stop, but I, that's not the halachic stop. And and someone says, you know, usually it's one of my children says, about you should stop. And I said, suggested. <laughs> So what you should go to, I think, is verse uh, uh, 15. I was going to go there. I was gonna oh, okay. Go there. So your parent, it doesn't matter how hard you hit them. If you raise your hand to them, you're you're killed. Okay, so fine. So And would any parent put their kid to death because they raised their hand to them? Well, that, so what's missing here is what was the motive and the force of the blow? Right, because Makah is often understood to attempt, if not deliver, a lethal blow. So it's not like a love tap to your parent and all of a sudden you're going to be executed. Is that you raised a murderous hand to your parent and it doesn't matter what the results are, you're subject to the death penalty. So, so, but you, you again, you, you're applying a layer of interpretation, which I think is, is just obvious. It's a necessity. You just can't adjudicate this law without, without trying to interpret it because. Otherwise, we get into we get into all sorts of situations where the law could be completely abused. Well, the parsha mishpatim. This is of course correct. This is what gives rise to the idea in rabbinic Judaism that there's two Torah. There's Torah the, Shabbat, the the law, and Torah Shabbat the law as explained uh, orally. But in addition, parsha mishpatim does include what this is not the simple meaning of the of the phrase, but this is how the rabbi takes it. Um, where I always take it is the principle of majority rule in disputes, Zachary Rabim Latot, which means that the implicit premise of the idea that the legal system is okay, we're going to have a group of people discussing it, they're going to constitute a court, they're going to disagree, and sometimes we're going to have to settle the disagreement by voting. Yeah. All right, go next, go the Gonevishu Mikharo, the kidnapping and selling them into slavery. This, 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 this it, it says, uh, okay, so they find the person, but this is Joseph, right? Tell, selling Joseph as a slave, that, that's the death penalty. But go to the next verse, never mind raising your hand or fist to your parents, even if you curse your parents. Right, but here I think we have to explain what curse means. Oh. And I think the curse is to invoke a divine power to... May God kill, kill the the recipient of the curse, right? It's not what we call cursing swear words. It's right. an invocation of the divine, the divine power against someone. And okay. obviously, by the way, this is the relationship of these stories. Uh, you're pointing out the stories in Breshit and, and the early part of Shemot, but also the relationship of these specific rules to the Ten Commandments. I think. You know, is a rich relationship, which is to say that you know, oh, Ten Commandments, hooray! It was beautiful. The mountain was quaking in the divine voice, and Moses speaks, and God answers in thunder. Um, no, we're turning these things into structures of society, legislations that because you can't get to the they can't get to the all the the electricity without the nitty and the gritty. Yeah. I mean, and I, I want to add one other point. The premise of the covenant code seems to be a court system. That it's not simply the application of the law, but 
it requires some kind of discussion to see how the law fits the given situation. So we're trying to construct a society here, a more just society, to, to, to coin a phrase. Well, I, I, the question for me is not just about constructing a just society, is but how does this filter down to the Israelites? In other words, you know, I think most people in this country think of themselves as good Americans, even though we hardly ever look at the Constitution. We never look at a, the federal or state law codes. Tax code. Grow up, That's good. What? <laughs> Read the federal tax code, thousands of pages. Well, yeah, that's why we have showers for that kind of reading. Um, <laughs> anyway, the point is we grow up in a society, as Chaim Salvejic once pointed out, learning how to do things by imitating people who do them who are our elders. And, you know, the, the question for me is, how did this resonate with the average Israelite? Was he aware of the law code or he just knew that everyone's expected to behave in a certain way? And if you don't, you're going to be hauled to court and then you'll find out what's going on. So the, the, the premise is that there, there must have been something that people could remember. Right when it comes to let's say ayin tachad ayin shein tachad shein that kind of thing lie for an eye that's a memorable line and and of course it doesn't mean you know what we what we think it means an actual eye for an actual eye but so so some code some part of the law does does lodge in people's memory and it is an oral culture and it is and people do. You know, they, they'll understand, they'll at least understand the Ten Commandments. They Maybe they'll commit the Ten Commandments to memory and they'll say, oh, you know, they'll be reminded when, when they want to steal something or, or kill someone. You know, well, load your time. All right, so, Elliot, in this oral culture, we know from Sefer Devarim, the law is read only once every seven years. Right, okay. Right at the Hakel ceremony, and I think in Chapter 28 of Devarim. So, is that enough? No. Well, this, that's... It is true you have this large, you have this assemblage um, of, of, of the, but there's also Vishinantan Levanecha, Vidibartabam, Vishitovetakumacha. There's an idea of um, by the time Deuteronomy rolls along, which is, which, you know, well, <laughs> some years after uh, this code. Um, it's just in a few months, I think. Culture is constituted by repetition, 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 so that you do. And ultimately, as Jeremiah says, ultimately, um, you're not going to need one person to tell another person how to, to, to behave because the law will be written on their hearts. And so ultimately, that's what we're going for is to you can internalize these uh, things. But I, I just, whatever, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly important question that I don't know how we would go about answering. It's, it's, it seems to me incredibly unlikely that the, you know, that the ancient biblical Israelite um, you know, was talking about the law, but it seems to me incredibly likely that the ancient biblical Israelite was having some problems with somebody stealing somebody else's property, and they go to the class of people who actually do know the law, who figure out that you owe this guy for drachma. Yeah, and that and that uh, we we have we have a constitution of sorts. We have a basic law. Okay, let's jump to the end of the parsha. We we. Um, where they the people ratify this, and it's it's such an extraordinary ceremony with sacrifice, with blood, with with fire, with all sorts of things. Moses sprinkling the blood. I'm in chapter 24 
Like, Kach Moshe Chatzi Adam, Ayasem Ha'aganot, he takes half the blood, puts it in the kind of basins, and he, Chatzi Adam, Zarak Al-Mizbech, he throws half the blood on a on the altar. So we're, we're, we're all in ritual ritual territory. Right, what happens to the other half? Sprinkles on the people. Sprinkles on the right. altar. So what is that all about? That's about, that's consecration. You sprinkle blood, it's consecration. It's indexing, indexing. <laughs> so I, I kind of look at it more as possession. Possibly that's, also, great. That's sure God, God sure. taking possession of the people. Okay, well, take it out. By the way, Elliot, you, you uh, really, you know, brilliantly interpreted that uh, when we're talking in Exodus 12 about placing the blood on the house, the house becomes the altar. Okay. And so here, perhaps, the same thing is true, that the people are also sanctified, so to speak. Absolutely. You know, this, this, the, the placing of blood is ownership, it's, it's sanctification, it's a kind of, it's like anointing in some way, but, but different, it's placing a life essence on them. And, but, but beyond the, that kind of symbolic, deep symbolism, here is a, a, the vocalization, Vaikra Bosneam. He reads it, but I love that he puts it in their ears, right? Vaikra Bosneam. It's like, hello, this is what you're supposed to do. Don't, you know, if you have a Hebrew slave, you know. And they say, everything that God said, we will do and we will understand, we will listen, we will obey. Da -da -da -da. And I, I, as I'm saying this now, you know, with with, it's like, it's enough. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll we'll do whatever you say. Just just stop the blood. Stop throwing blood on us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, all right. Those are these are two of the most important words in the tradition, and yet, and yet, well, you know, react. What's going on here? I mean, and and in light of certainly what comes after, you know. Is this a great? So, I, I think that you know this is in a sense the counterpart to Revelation, and you know we we tend to think of Revelation as being unidirectional from God to the people, but Revelation requires a response from the people, and without the people's response, the Revelation itself is without meaning because it's not what the Revelation means to God, the omniscient is what it means to the people. So just go a second back to Boomer and Rosenzweig, which which. So restate what you just said in light of Buber and Rosenzweig. Buber, Buber is like, so there's revelation. So, you know, I, Buber had his issues, of course, as we all do. But he was most emphatic that law and revelation were two distinct and Law never measured up to revelation. That um, the individual decides how to respond. And why Rosen, Buber is so appealing? Because Buber is, is you know... Really well, the irony of Buber is that traditionally he was more appealing to Christians than to Jews, right? Because he's considered to be an antinomian in the Pauline tradition. Um, but Rosenzweig, I think, was more of a communitarian as well and deferred at least in part to the community in a way that Buber didn't religiously. Uh -huh. um, and so for Rosenzweig, the law was an important, could be an important component of of Revelation. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that when you look at Jewish, modern Jewish philosophy, 
the person who appears in modern Jewish philosophy books is Rosenzweig and not Buber. Not Buber, not Buber at all. Because right. Buber is not considered a Jewish philosopher, but more a philosopher who is a Jew. You know, I, I, I don't uh, I don't really have anything to add about that that excellent presentation, but I would just say about the uh, the revelation makes no sense without the receipt. This is nice, nice idea. Totally, totally correct in a religion of breed, right? Um, Which is what we have here in twenty four. Exactly, a religion, a religion of covenant um, is not is not possible to be um, unidirectional, and the whole sweep of Judaism was a Torah Shabbatav, a written Torah, and a Torah Shabbatav. Which, even though there are there are elements in the Agadic tradition that says, "Oh, well, God also gave the Torah Shabbatav," actually, that makes no sense. Not only on a historical level that it has to be evolved through through the centuries, but it makes no sense on a, on the religious layer. The truth is, the Torah Shabbatav, you know, God gives a Torah to Earth, and Earth gives a Torah back to Heaven in its interpretation. So there has to be two partners to the covenant. That's that's what makes Judaism make sense, and um, and it comes very clearly. You know, one of the most famous pieces of rabbinic lore, which many of our many listeners will have heard many times, is that God held the mountain over their heads and said, "Listen, do you accept the law or not? Uh, it, it, wonderful if you do, and if not, smush." And so the people accept the law, and then the Talmud says, "In this, like, this is one of the most famous. Everyone knows the bit about God holds the mountain over their heads like like a cask." But the rest of it is even better, which is to say that, that the uh, Talmud then goes, well, then the, the Torah is invalid. You can't force somebody to, you can't coerce somebody into a covenant. And that the punchline on that Midrash is that they accepted it again in the time of Esther and Mordechai, which, which of course is the, is the book in which God's name is absent. So when the people accept the Torah, they say, not because God is forcing them, but because they can respond even when God is not so present, not so obviously present, now that's religion. Yeah. So what I would add to what you said, Jeremy, which was excellent, is that the this idea of greed is what levels the playing field. Even though God has more power than B'nai Yisrael, in this, in the breed, God needs B'nai Yisrael. And there is a rabbinic idea of Mishutaf Bereshit, that we participate with God and that's a creation and the truth of the matter is we have to participate with god in acts of revelation as well as acts of redemption you know we tend to focus on the creation aspect but it is a, a partnership because the response is what makes the relationship otherwise it's one way all right i know that we're, we're out of time here but uh you know we have a lot of colleagues who watch our and listen to our uh, parsha talk so, so feel free to use that one. Feel free to use that line in your sermons or or Divrei uh, Torah this coming Shabbat. Uh, but before we say goodbye, we want to thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Offer Hakarata Tov. Uh, it, it really means a lot to us. And feel free to share share uh, the link to this. Uh, we've all done that, and, and uh, it just it just makes a, for a good conversation among people, as this one was. We look forward to seeing you next week. In the meantime, enjoy the week. Shabbat shalom. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 מרגישים קיץ באוויר. רדיו כל רמה 102.3 FM